Hello, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Ben Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. You know, I think this was an obvious thing. I don't think I learned this from a podcast. I don't think that having had this podcast would have taught me what I'm about to tell you. But I think what it did was illustrate it to me. It's just very interesting to me that all throughout basically the thread or one of the threads of my podcast, and it could be that I'm a fan of sports, I don't know. But one of the threads of my podcast is so many people eventually weave narratives about their sport that they choose to follow um, you know, into their conversation with me. And, I mean, that's natural. They do it in life. They do it throughout, you know, conversations all over the place. It's just so interesting to me that this podcast is illustrative of that. Maybe largely because I don't think that was always the case. And I also think that the very notion of talking telephonically or over the internet or over through technology of of some type or other has become less and less formal through time. This is a conversation with a theology professor. His name is Jason Smith, Dr. Jason Smith. And I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about. I I was pretty sure we were going to talk about theology, and and I still want to talk about theology with him and other people as well. By the way, this was a very interesting podcast, and he brought up some very, very interesting parallels for, as he put it, a very insular American audience. I have listeners all over the world, um, so I'm sure I'm going to get a healthy dose of listeners who are going to learn one way or the other about college football. Uh, Hopefully not just from this podcast. Um, And also, I should probably tell you in full disclosure, I'm not what anybody would be considered a college football fan, I wouldn't think, which is weird because I live in the South and I'm from the South, and you would think being in the cradle of college football and living here essentially my entire life, you would think that I love and adore college football as so many, many people do uh, in the South, and really it's pretty low down on my the sports I choose to care about uh, for reasons I just don't really understand and honestly never really tried to care about. Anyway, that's just because, you know, people get busy and people like what they like, I guess. There's there's absolutely no accounting for taste. Anyway, this was a completely fascinating podcast. And I'm sure in the future, in, in the future, whenever this podcast is heard in the future whenever the future arrives it will be fascinating because here's a theologian talking about college football anyway you know I've always said that this podcast essentially is an oral history of the times in which we live and that's To me, that's what this is. This is a podcast about the times in which we live, 
uh, he's actually, um, while he gave it to me, he was traveling um, for the 4th of July holiday. And, of course, I, I didn't release it around the 4th of July because we have fireworks. We have fireworks in my neighborhood, and I feel like fireworks, you know, they would obviously of impact the um, recording of the show. So anyway, I'm releasing it now into the universe. And as always, I'm having a good day. And I hope you are too. All right. And I'll see you later. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. Dr. Jason Smith has kindly sacrificed part of his 4th of July holiday to be with me today, virtually. And so I thought we could talk about his thoughts on theology, or as I said, theology and whatever else pops into his mind. All right, Dr. Smith, why don't you give us a little bit of... uh, what are your what's your take on where Christianity is today in America? <laughs> that's a that's an easy one to jump in with. Um, <laughs> I, I think there are a couple of things that I, that I always uh, kind of hold as you know the basic principles here. I think Christianity in America right now is at it always feels like we're when we ask this question we're always tempted to be like, well, we're at a crossroads, but it really does kind of feel that we've hit some sort of inflection point in the Trump era that like kind of a reckoning on, you know, putting your money where your mouth is as far as the values of Jesus of Nazareth and whether or not you actually care about them or not. And it feels Mm -hmm. like to me a good, you know, the church is really going through a kind of very difficult time of having to sort of say where the boundary is and where the line is versus, you know, in our political and, you know, secular actions. And so, you know, it's, it's a really tough point where a lot of people, I know myself included from the South, you know, you have deep divisions within families now that are not over just like, well, you know, I think, you know, I think the free market is the best solution to problems, or I think government assistance is needed more like deep divisions of, you know, I supported the coup on January 6th or I didn't, or, you know, I think Donald Trump is the smartest person alive and can do no wrong versus I think that's incredibly silly. Um, So I think that's a thing. I think, you know, on the whole, like religion, like the decline of religion thesis has always been a big thing of like, well, eventually, you know, church attendance is going to plummet and drop off. And it seems like obviously during the Trump era, like religion has played a huge part in American politics and in public life. Um, but the mainline, which I belong to, by the way, as an Episcopalian, like mainline is still kind of in decline. And a lot of hand wringing over that, I think, is wrong headed. Like I, I'm one of those odd people who at theology conferences, my colleagues will be freaking out about, you know, how do we make this relevant? How do we make our numbers go up? And how do we you know, make the message of theology relevant for today. And I just don't care about that very much. I really don't. I just think, you know, if decline is what happens, then decline is what happens. Like you just, you just kind of stick to what, you know, you, you continue to grow the tradition, but like 
you know, de- you know, decline is not a bad thing in my opinion. That's maybe one of the weirder things I think about Christianity in America. But so those are like the two big things off the top. But other than that, like that's a really long story. Okay, so I wasn't gonna ask you this. I didn't even know to ask you this, but here we go. Why do you not think decline is a bad thing in in mainline Christian faith? And also, just a second. Are we talking about the African-American church as well as the white church? Or just when we say declining, what is declining? Is is the white church in decline as well as the African-American church? Or is it? One or the other or both is what the, I'm asking, I guess. Yeah, those are numbers I don't know. Um, I don't know the distinction between like white mainline versus black mainline, uh, like attendance numbers dropping or going up. Um, I have no idea. I think in general, I think that like evangelical Christianity is either kind of like in for a while there it was growing. And now I think post Trump era, we've, I, I'm, and again, somebody, maybe one of your listeners can comment or something and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that evangelical Christianity has also begun to see some decline, especially the Southern Baptist convention um, a little bit, uh, but they normally have had better numbers than mainline. And by that, obviously we're talking about Episcopalians, we're talking about Methodists, we're talking about Presbyterians, um, those folks. <laughs> Just the theological reason why I don't think decline is bad is because one, we're told to expect it in the Bible. Um, And if you actually think that that's, you know, (laughs) if you think that the Bible is in some way like the harbinger or like the the kind of like North Star of what you believe truth is. um, So you can do that without being fundamentalist and say like the Bible is without error in anything. But so I, I kind of see the Bible as sort of the source of the Christian tradition that I have committed myself to and belong to. And so in in the Bible, I feel like it's pretty clear that the church declines or is, is predicted to decline a good bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because Jesus's teaching is meant to be actually quite difficult to hold to. Um, and so I don't I, I don't see decline as like a, we should welcome it and try to be like as big assholes as possible. So people leave because that's how we know we're following Jesus. Like, that's not what I mean. But I do think decline is not a harbinger of like, well, Christianity has become unbelievable now. It's more like these are cultural factors that like the church can't control and trying to control sort of like the appeal of Christianity to people intuitively who have been socialized and brought up in, in like in our current milieu, I guess is the best way to say it. Like we just don't have any control over that. And so, you know, you're asking people to, you know, be willing to accept a certain kind of answer to the question of why is there something rather than nothing. And that's a really complicated, you know, initial situation to be in. And so I, you know, I just don't, I don't really worry about that. I think that, Mm. you know, what the church should be about is what Jesus was about. And I know that's very easy to say, but, you know, help, like we should be about doing justice. We should be about loving mercy. We should be about helping the poor. We should be about, um, social justice in many ways as we can and about, you know, preaching what we call the gospel that, you know, Jesus died and rose again from the grave and, you know, teach the Nicene creed. But if people, sh- you know, in my, this is just me, I guess, cause there are people that I think maybe are right to freak out about it. But for me, I, I think if you're doing that and, you know, holding to the Nicene creed and people are showing up great. If they're not showing up, that's also fine. Like the point is not necessarily to craft a message that's appealing. The, the point is to, 
both safeguard and grow. And I'm serious about that of like develop the tradition and make new, you know, bring in changes and new things, but, you know, safeguard and develop the Christian tradition as the thing that is the most true about who we are, you know? And then if that means people are there, great. But if not, it's no big deal. I hope that my podcast survives me. I, I hope that it continues in some form, even if just in files, stored in an archive digital files stored in an archive i hope it survives me so you said something a second ago and i think i know what you mean but there are it strikes me there are people in the future that probably have no idea what you mean um when you said our current times or our current milieu what do you mean by you, you mean as far as the rising secularization and the the rising, uh, what exactly do you mean? Yeah. Um, I think I would probably, I'm going to have to like jump into philosophy real quick. Um, oh, fine. <laughs> which is oh, never good. Um, <laughs> I think I'm sort of thinking about like, you know, the Nietzsche's God is dead bit of like the conditions of our world are such that the Christian God has for so many become something that is impossible to believe in. And then I'm thinking about there and I'm thinking about Charles Taylor's concept of the social imaginary that like the imagined picture of our world uh, that most everybody holds and that kind of allows us to create common practices together as a group of people, um, sort of like a collective intuition of how things ought to be and how the world works and, you know, what is true and real about the world and what counts as, as true or evidence for something being true. That like those can, if you have, you imagine that as like a dial that's like set all the way to 10 would be like, you know, everybody's super ready to be religious and then set all the way to zero, you know, no one is religious and everyone thinks religion is utterly ridiculous. Like, I think now the dial is at a place where, you know, religion is not necessarily like favorable but it's not set all the way to zero but it's definitely under five it feels like you know it's just it it feels like it is harder now based just on what we think of the world and what we believe is true and what counts as evidence for truth and frankly the history of the church being more well known now that you know people who believe in the gospel don't actually do any of the stuff that jesus says you know and in fact do do very very opposite things of what jesus says and having to deal with like the horror of all of that has made the you know the vision or like the adopting anything close to uh the christian tradition as your own you know as yours um becoming christian in any sort of way like that is really really difficult um and not difficult as in like you know me being a christian is some stupid you know some great accomplishment but just i think it's you know, it, it takes, you know, the, the, the deck is just a little stacked against it is what I would say. You know, it, it's not the most mm. intuitive or appealing option right off the jump for people. So mm. yeah, that, that's kind of like, that has nothing. I don't know that there are any, like, you know, you call that like social factors of our world or something. And I, I can't really name a ton of like specific stuff I would point to, but just like yeah. that, when I think about why aren't more people religious when I find this to be so true, why do people find it ridiculous? Those are kind of the things that I think about is that I kind of, you know, was raised yeah. where it was a little easier for me to become religious. And then I kind of did that on my own, but a whole lot of people don't have, you know, if you're, you're normal, you know, just regular being an American 
uh, doesn't always lend itself well to, to something like, you know, mainline Christianity. I mean, I don't know too much about religious philosophy, but I know a little, I know a bit about philosophy in general. And there was a 20th century philosopher named, uh, French philosopher named Michel Foucault. <laughs> yes, I, I, I do know of one, Michel. <laughs> yeah, M- Michel Foucault. And Foucault, now, I, I distinctly remember reading Foucault in college. And I distinctly remember thinking, this is crap. This is total <laughs> crap. And then a thing happened. And the thing was, I lived through the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then, so I, because I have this podcast where, you know, I, I like to sound like I'm intelligent. Okay. So I started reading Michelle Foucault again, cause I still had a lot of those books and it occurred to me that, Oh, in order to understand Michelle Foucault properly, you have to live through a thing. Like you have to come through, like things have to change tectonically yeah. in your world. Disciplinary normalization sounds like <laughs> crap until you're stuck in a survey, like in a surveillance condition constantly for a year. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. Or like there was a thing where he wrote this book about madness. Yeah. Where he talks about how before there, you know, you, you wouldn't medicalize. They didn't medicalize it. Like they didn't think, Oh, these people need to be put somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And then gradually things happened, and oh, we need to put these people places, okay? And I'm like, okay, what happened in 2020? A whole lot of people started to realize that the internet was not a toy anymore. Yeah, that it was a tool, right? And a whole lot of people had to come into the realization that America as it's currently configured can't solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So that was mind altering for a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Charles Taylor um, is right that we all have to kind of agree on the illusion. (laughs) We have to agree on this, what we're seeing you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, the, the thing I've always loved about Foucault is he kind of, well, there, I, there's lots of stuff. So I, I, I do some research on Foucault. He's kind of the, we, we can take the podcast here in a little while if you want to, but he's the guy that helps me think about like, think through and understand why college football is so weird. <laughs> I can say more about that later if you want to talk it through, but I, I um, do. Yeah. So he, he helps me think through like why people get really weird about stuff that I don't feel like is a big deal in some ways. And it's because to go back to to Taylor too, I think like an imagined picture of how things ought to be is operative behind some of the things that make people kind of morally panic. And so whenever you run into something that like, for, for instance, just talking about college football of like people freaking out about players making money, you know, and especially the the thing that really did it for me was like being around a ton of like deeply free market Republican types who were like, your worth is what you can make on the free market. You can make it as soon as you're like five, you know, if you're selling lemonade and you have like the dopest lemonade on earth. 
you should be able to make ten thousand dollars a cup of lemonade even if you're five right like there's no reason that you shouldn't do that and then and then those same people would turn around and say no like college football will be ruined for me if trevor lawrence the you know beautifully quaffed uh clemson quarterback if that guy makes money from like a local hot dog vendor at clemson for endorsing their product like college football is now dead to me and, and I could not figure out, like, why on earth is that a thing that you think? And I think Foucault's, like, vision of sort of, like, power within our society is not, like, a top-down direction of, I believe X is true, and since I'm in charge, I'm going to make all of y'all do it. But power is more this very diffuse phenomenon that's kind of like a whole series of relations. Think of it as, like, a power relay, you know, like a, mm. a whole series of wirings and whatnot that like kind of morphs and moves and pushes us as individuals within society towards certain ideals that we all kind of collectively share without ever really talking about it. And so like it does that through disciplinary practices that society imposes upon people, such as you're just describing, like the mentally ill were for a while there, like just roaming about and were this really interesting example of the opposite of what reason and rationality was. They were roaming on these ships of fools sometimes, as they used to be called, like just chuck them all on a boat and they would just kind of roam around. Um, And then suddenly they were confined. They were this like massive problem that were causing people panic and anxiety of all these like, you know, the crazy people on the streets. Mm. And it's like that that panic didn't really have a whole lot of roots. Like it just kind of happens. Um, And it creates this whole series of like these new knowledges, as Foucault would say, like these new like types of Mm. knowledge that Mm. people were suddenly very interested in, like criminal psychology and you know in like in Freudian psychology and stuff like that so all of that stuff comes up to try to like solve this problem of things are not going the way they ought to go in our minds we have to fix it and so I think for going back to the Republican example of like this guy who believes in the free market total libertarian but then also thinks that like if college football players make any money like the sport is ruined like there's an imagined norm going on there that is causing that panic and consternation. And it tends to collapse when like you ask even a couple of simple questions into some, you know, like just, well, wait, you believe this about society. Why do you think this is any different? And there tends not to be any, any like actual there there for them. They can't really answer why that's the case. And it either comes down to like, well, I just, I just think that, or you, you know, admit that there are two different morals here, two different like visions of morality that are operating for you that when you switch, you go to social stuff, you think it's this. And then when you switch to college football, suddenly there's something different. So that's well, how football kind of helps me think through yeah. how weird college football fandom is sometimes. Well, I have, um, it's funny that you wanted to talk about this today because I was actually for no reason at all. I was thinking about what Lynn, I think his, I think it was Lynn Swan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn Swan had this line where he said he had to take a pay cut to play in the NFL. <laughs> I, don't know if I don't know if that's Lynn Swan, but I've heard that quote. I can't remember if that was Lynn Swan or if that's not. That might have been Eric Dickerson. Somebody, but. somebody said there's a famous line where somebody said I had to take a pay cut to play in the NFL, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was, I mean, I don't want to throw the wrong person under the bus, but. I went to a college for a little while that um, back in the late nineties, I went to college for a little while where college football was a big deal. Yeah. And I had a friend who worked in the administration as like a student worker. 
and he knew things about certain football players, you know, if they weren't, I think what he said was, if they're not getting paid, it doesn't matter because somebody's buying them X, Y, and Z. And everybody who works in this department can see that. Yeah. Or can see the evidence of it. And so, I mean, the thing we need to talk about as adults is this has been, go- you know, payment of college football players has been going on for probably for decades. Um, there was the the man, oh God, the quarterback of, okay, football is way down on my list of sports that I like. <laughs> um, oh, you know, he played, he's the quarterback of, I think, the New England Patriots today now. Cam Newton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was his father was paid by Auburn. Yes. And Mississippi State, I believe. Exactly. So not a small chunk of you know, and it wasn't a small chunk of change. No. So no. let's, you know, the thing the thing that I like about what the Supreme Court said is that at least you're gonna be honest about it. And that's yeah. that's all I ask is be honest about it. Yeah, and the, the it's funny that we've gone from like religion to college football because I'm sure some of your listeners are like the obvious through line here is believing in illusions that are not actually real, right? Like believing in stuff, total lies. Because like people believing that college football athletes are not paid in some ways, it's just, it just ridiculous. Like it's been happening forever. Well, right. Um, yeah, and I think, it, but see, I get very interested as a scholar, and, and maybe this is the way that my two things connect of doing religion and also researching sports i get very interested when people are believing obvious lies or are are parroting out believe earnestly in things that to me are clearly contradictory right like that to me that fascinates me it's that's my my go-to for research questions and so i the the cam newton one is is a good example of like everybody kind of knows that this is happening it seems for some reason to be really important though, that we believe that the thing that's happening for most people is nothing, no compensation at all. Um, and I, for the life of me still don't know why, because we watched the Olympics and like the Olympics, these like the Wheaties endorsement is a huge deal. And like, that's obviously compensated. And for a while there though, that was a thing. Like people were really, you know, right didn't want Olympic athletes to make money too. So like this kind of stuff can obviously like change and then you can still enjoy the sport afterwards. Um, So yeah, it's, that's, this is the exact kind of contradiction that I love to think about and, and write about and to, to go to the Supreme court opinion for a bit, people were trying to sort of say, wait, hang on everybody. You know, this doesn't mean that amateurism is dead. It doesn't mean that college athletes are going to get paid because the ruling was very narrow and it was only about this certain bit of antitrust legislation that, you know, a- applied to something with the NCAA, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But like, if you go and back and read Brett Kavanaugh's concurrence with Gorsuch's opinion, so it was a unanimous decision and Gorsuch writes the main opinion. And then Kavanaugh concurs, which is already odd because it's a unanimous opinion. You wonder like, why do you need a concurrence? Well, Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence basically just to say, yeah, amateurism as a philosophy is complete garbage. And and it's really remarkable coming from Kavanaugh because it's kind of like, okay, go back to the Republican example that I had before. It's sort of like if a Republican has seen the light about college athletics, what does his 
argument against it sound like, it sounds like exactly what Brett Kavanaugh wrote, which is there's like, there is no legal justification for what y'all are doing. I happen to believe that, and I believe this a little less today than I did when I first said it many years ago now, but I happen to believe that philosophy as a whole is bunk because Hmm. You believe what you believe because you believe it. And you use philosophy to to justify this belief. So it's possible for somebody to put thoughts in Kavanaugh's head. It's possible for a person to think that, you know, uh, Shelby County or, uh, you know, the Shelby County decision is real and is a good thing. And that corporations are, in fact, people. Mm hmm. And it's also possible for somebody to think, especially if they're of an age, I would say, right? Yeah. It's possible for somebody to believe that, you know, the going, we ought to establish the going rate of a starting quarterback at the University of Alabama or whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I agree with that. I, I disagree with that mostly, but there's part of it. There's a, a nugget of it that I would want to pull out, which is to say, okay, I think we've talked a lot about how like certain truths or certain like common beliefs need historical conditions to change in order for them to be believable or not. Right. Mm. I don't think though, that that kind of stuff is incompatible with a vision of like philosophy striving for and reaching actual honest to God truth through philosophy, not just as like a justification of what you believe after the fact, but as like an honest quest for what is true and what is wise and what the good life is and what happiness is. Like I, I, I would want to yeah. say lots of philosophies are kind of bound to their time. Sure. But there's also something in all of them that is, I don't want to sound too like Hegelian here, but like that is building towards some sort of progress you know, towards truth, right? Like I, I honestly, honestly believe like this is part of why I like keep talking about the Christian tradition, right? It's because I don't find any sort of vision of Christianity. That's like, there is one single set of Christian doctrine that has been decided upon and never changed. And that's been forever. I don't think that's true, but I think I like the, the sort of like stability you can get in the instability of a tradition of like this ongoing conversational fight in a group of people. And also like people can, have their minds changed. Like um, when I went to a, I went to a research one school. So there, you know how there's a D one school for athletics. Well, there's also R one schools for research. Yep. I did as well. So I was, I was at UGA. So, right. Yeah. Well, when you go to a research one school, you really see the business of college. Like you really see the business of it. And you, when you understand that there are people in that classroom sitting with you who are being paid to be there in all but name by the university, Mm -hmm. right? The whole idea of amateur athletics just sort of becomes farcical. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like it just becomes like if you're paying this guy to study physics or to play the violin or whatever, why can't you play the starting quarterback? Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause let's get real for a second. That starting quarterback does more for the university 
than that violin player. Right. Like, <laughs> like it's insane to think that as a PhD student at Vandy, right? Like I was, all yeah. tuition is waived. I'm making 20 grand a year, right? As a PhD student. And the, the justification for that is like, you go and like create new knowledge and then you like leave and build up Vanderbilt's brand, I guess, by like going and being a, well, you know, it used to be yeah. you'd go and be a professor somewhere, but not now. Cause you know, the academic job market's in a, in a free fall, but you know, that, that I was doing that with the idea that I would produce something good for Vanderbilt. Meanwhile, there's like, you know, I don't know if it's football, but like their baseball team surely is bringing in more money than I was bringing in just by being there and studying stuff. Or, or their basketball team, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, their their baseball team, maybe, but that basketball team, all ever since I could care about college basketball or whatever, ever since I knew what it was, that basketball team was somewhat good yeah. they've had least. hard times recently they were really good when i first got there um yeah. the baseball yeah. team just lost to mississippi state in the national championship so baseball is a, a decent deal there and now everybody that doesn't live in america has cut this podcast off. So <laughs> yeah, right. this is very like this it's the weird thing about about college stuff is that like there really is no parallel to it like it's very parallel in culture to like world world football, you know, like soccer culture. Mm, yeah, um, I think not, not in real terms. Though. Yeah, but no, nothing else about it makes any sense to anyone outside of the American context. So apologies there, but like it's a deeply, this is a very deeply family conversation of, you know, American family <laughs> stuff, stuff, you know, between, between two Southerners. Um, yes. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny that, I mean, you said, I don't want to be too Hegelian. I've never met, an American person that knew what Hegelian was that ever mm. said, I want to be super Hegelian now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, what I should say, I guess is like too utopian, you know, I, there's yeah. him and Marx both have this thing of like, eventually this process that has begun and this process that explains where we are yeah. now will eventually come to its full culmination and kind of like a, a utopian or, you know, eschatological endpoint. Yeah, awesome. Right. right. And, and so saying that, you know, I was with my students, especially, I, I always try to get them to say, you know, just admitting any kind of contingency to truth does not mean that there is no truth and that it doesn't exist. And then admitting any sort of process or development in a tradition doesn't mean you're automatically arguing for like a utopia that everything's going to be great. You know, it's just that you're arguing for contingency within truth. That's it. Yeah. And you also, I mean, you know, I don't know that, I mean, okay. Having studied history for most of my adult life at this point, um, I got to honestly say, I don't think utopia is possible. Yeah, honestly, yeah. Just, it is a very silly idea, <laughs> just, just on the, on the face it, of it. It's not possible. <laughs> and I, going back again to like historical conditions of what people believe, it's really interesting to try to imagine myself in a place where I thought something like that could be true. You know what I mean? Like, what sort of world would it take for you to really believe that you, like we're going to get there? You know, because like I cannot possibly imagine a world where I would be like, yep, you know what? this is going to happen. Like we're going to, we're going to make it to, you know, to full justice for all or something, you know, like it's, I just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is just unbelievable to me. I could see, I mean, I couldn't. Okay. Think about, so I'm a podcaster, right? Mm -hmm. And I talk to folks all over the planet. I've had conversations with people, I think on every continent except Africa and Antarctica, 
Which, by the way, if you want to talk to me in your own Africa, uh, please please talk yes. to me. We, we can have I can have a conversation with you. Code the evil are stand up. Come on, get in here. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm just saying. But that's amazing. So I mean, if you take if you take the techno the technological aspect of it, and you think this is Star Trek, and like I have you know I had a neighbor that was telling me that their child watched Star Trek for the first time, and they they looked at it and they were like. What is the big deal? I don't understand what the big deal is. You know? Yeah. You know? So. But I think in that now you are kind of pointing to the exact sort of folks whose world is ripe for believing in utopia and it's tech folks, right? Like mm-hmm. people in tech yeah. who see kind of like the, you know, the breakthrough of energy, some kind of energy tech or, you know, the breakthrough of, I don't know ending certain diseases, maybe this mRNA vaccine, vaccine technology will be the end of cancer, right? Like we could finally cure cancer and live past 120. Yeah. Um, which by the way, in the Bible says is impossible. So that's going to be a real weird thing if that ever actually happens. But yeah, 120 is the cap uh, for everybody. Um, and yeah, so I like, I think tech people, it makes sense. But then I'm also like, have y'all like not watched, and this is not all tech people, obviously, you know, hashtag not all tech folks. I know y'all listen, if folks are listening that are in tech, there are plenty of tech people that are like deeply interested in, in making sure this is not the way tech people think. But Okay, say that again, because we had a, we the internet struck and decided you needed to cut out right when you. Oh, uh, I was saying, you know, yeah, not all tech people believe in like this utopian vision of the world that tech is going to save everything. And there are lots of tech people that are like deeply thinking about the ethical aspects of like how you build sustainable stuff that at least makes the world better, but not great. Right. Um, so, so that's I, my main thing would be to say, like, I am, I struggle to figure out why people believe tech can lead to utopia when you watch all of the documentaries about how tech startups or tech companies have just done so much the same awful crap they just branded differently you know it's like yeah you're not exxon or bp or dupont chemical or whatever poisoning wells but you're doing essentially that you just call it you know some cool techie sounding thing uh you know whereas like google had to be like you know our our motto is don't be evil you know like that was that was something employee led to kind of make that a thing um yeah, yeah, so I just I, I like you am very skeptical of tech doing anything other than what we've always done with big corporate uh, things. And to be fair, I mean to be fair, I mean I actually agree with you totally. I mean, as as amazing as I think technology is in this day and age, I because I'm so intimate with it, I can also see where it can get really, really scary for people. Yeah. Like really, really, really scary. Like I'll give you an example. Um, so I could literally see a day in time when the social contract is that everybody must have a smartphone. Hmm. Okay. In a way that it's not that today, I could literally see where the social contract is getting back to Charles Taylor, where we just all decide we're going to all have a smartphone to the (laughs) point where you don't need to have street signs. You don't need to have cash. You don't need to have this and that and whatever. And so, and you signed yourself up to know things about this supercomputer in your pocket that a lot of people don't know offhand and have a lot of people either have to learn or or go through life not knowing. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, another thing is like one thing I noticed because, because I read a lot about COVID. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I remember we accidentally had a negative Twitter exchange <laughs> because I had read, I, I talked to people about COVID all the time and you would not believe some of their stories. Like some of their stories are terrifying or just horrifying. Yeah. Right. But yet, and still, I have a neighbor that thinks that COVID is the flu. You're right. Yeah. You know, I mean, right. And I'm all telling him to you know, please wear a mask when you go. I mean, not anymore because everybody should be vaccinated. But, yeah. you know, back in the day, I was like, please wear a mask or yeah. don't. You wouldn't believe some of these people with the blood clots and yeah. stroking out. and mm-hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was actually getting my haircut last week, uh, getting ready to do like a give a virtual paper for a conference. And uh, midway through my haircut, me and the the woman cutting my hair are talking about, you know, things in Mississippi and how we can get back to normal. And I say offhand, yeah, you know, know, we're doing this, doing that. And then I say, yeah, if we can just get our vaccine numbers up, you know, things will be a lot better. Because Mississippi, by the way, is like one of the worst for vaccination rate states in the country where like, we're just awful. We're like bottom three, I think. Um, and so we're, we're halfway through the haircut, right? I'm halfway through this lady has scissors in her hand. Oh, like, and she says, she says, I'm actually anti-vax. And I go, Oh God, no. <laughs> like, what have I done? And then she keeps cutting and then she puts me on the spot, looks at me in the eye and goes, do you believe we should force people to get the shot? And I'm just like, Oh Jesus. Like you have blades in your hand right now. Um, and I, I kind of, it, it's, you know, I kind of gave a more mealy mouthed answer than I probably would have had she not been, had my life not been in her hands in that moment. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't want to force people to get it, but if you're healthy, you definitely should get it. And, um, it, really, really weird too, because like those folks always know the people or know of the stories, quote unquote, of people having reactions. Whereas like, I know, I know so many people in my life who've gotten the shot and are fine. And if you're listening to this from wherever you're listening to this, like go get the shot. You are going to be fine. It's going to be great. Um, second dose is pretty rough. You feel like you have the flu, but other than that, nothing. Well, but she knows people who like, you know, had <laughs> one guy got the shot and then the next day he was paralyzed. And like, I don't want to minimize that, but also I can't imagine that's actually a thing from the shot, right? It feel, that sounds made up. Um, just, you know, a ton of like anaphylaxis reactions and blood clotting and stuff like that. And, you know, I know that was the thing with Johnson and Johnson, but it, it just, you know, it's, it's so weird of like, again, the things you're kind of conditioned and, you know, this, the truths that kind of find you based on what you've been shaped to be. And that just seems like a thing that for her, you know, it was like, yeah. you're anti-vax and of course, you know, all of the people who've had all the reactions, whereas I don't, because I think the shot's great. Well, okay. So. Here's I'm going to give you a nuanced answer from somebody who's spoken to people all over the planet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And not to toot my own horn, but I am like the 15th most listened to podcast about COVID. Nice. In the world. So, I mean, I, I didn't go to medical. Okay. I didn't go to medical school, but I did get a master's degree. And so with that knowledge, I read a lot of abstracts from a lot of studies yeah. and such. And here's a little operational theory that I have, okay? I have this theory that a hell of a lot more people had COVID than anybody knows. Yeah. Okay. I can I can get down with that. Okay. Here's here's where I'm going with that. 
the science is that if you had COVID and you take one of these shots or both of them, you're going to have a negative reaction. Now I had a friend, now I'm pro vaccine. I'm pro all kinds of vaccines, not just COVID. I had a friend, a very close friend that actually ended up in the hospital. Oh man. Because he, because he took the COVID shot. Yeah. He had the COVID shot. And, um, you know, but again, look, I'm, I'm so pro vaccine, you know, <laughs> but <Yeah>. still, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but see, I'm one of those people and I'm sure, you know, a ton of people like this too, of the people who swear they had it in February or January of, of 2019, I guess it would have been, um, or 2020. Yeah. I, I lose track. The pandemic has made me lose track of the years when things happen. Um, <laughs> But like I went to a, you know, this is a story you'll hear from everybody. I'm sure people listening would like, you know, y'all have either you're the one telling the story or you know somebody who tells the story of I went to a conference, people flying in from all over the country, some from the West Coast. And I don't know why we think the West Coast would have been the way like, I don't know why we think of this disease as like it started on the West Coast and moved what and moved east just because like, you know, China is closer to California than it is to Atlanta. But like that, you know, because that's not the way the world works anymore. But I was at a conference and shaking hands, no masks, you know, this was before any of this had, had dropped and then came home and you're hearing rumblings of what's going on in Wuhan. And then I'm like coughing up my lungs and almost like coughing so hard. I'm almost passing out driving basically. And I'm like, now I'm like, I had COVID right. Dot, dot, dot. Um, probably not. I'm sure it could have just been a really bad chest cold you know like who knows but i that's one of those ones where i'm like i swear that was what it was but i didn't have a really negative reaction to the shot like i i had a really rough flu like symptoms the second dose they kind of put me out for a day but nothing nothing bad to the extent of you know hospitalization or or like what, what i would describe as a negative reaction to a vaccine i mean i've heard stories from people that i believe um that okay i believe that they had an experience like that like i I believe they wouldn't lie to me about hey i had covid just so i can be on the i had covid bandwagon and it was fine but but i've heard stories from people but i think i read somewhere that they now think that the covid was in the east coast of america before it was in washington state yeah but they also, I mean, I've heard of studies done in Texas where they think COVID goes pretty far back. I mean, so, I mean, you know, and, and being that I'm a, one of these podcasters, people, especially in Asia, want to get my take on the lab leak theory. Yeah. And um, my take on the lab leak theory is this. Um. I have an open mind to if you can present me with evidence of Bigfoot, right? Okay, I'll believe in Big. If you can present me with actual evidence of Bigfoot, I'm I'm I'll I'll be open to that. So I'm open to the lab leak theory, but I'll say that I read a lot of news from India, and India does not like China, right? Yeah, and so India is not going to pass up a, a a moment to to bash china for anything okay so i don't see the lab leak theory coming from indian newspapers is what i'm saying right yeah and you feel like that would be pretty low-hanging fruit to to dive on for any evidence for it (laughs) i feel like if there was evidence if there was actual 
evidence that didn't eventually circle back to the, the American media missed the boat. Because remember, we're a global, I mean, those pesky British folks got everywhere. Right? <laughs> they taught a lot of people English. Okay. So you can read the Indian newspapers. You can read, I mean, you know, <laughs> just saying. It's weird to me. I mean, to me, again, going back to like conditions for truth, and I'll stop saying going back to it because, you know, we're in a big conversation, but like, it strikes me now. I wonder if like there being evidence for something being true versus it being like a fun, like I'm, I'm more prone to believe that it, it, it weirds me out more. I guess I should say that like Indian media wouldn't be jumping on the lab leak theory because it's so incendiary. Whereas like they're not being any evidence for it. Like, I don't really, I don't feel like that's a standard that anybody uses right now for like what they want to promote out into the world in so many ways. Like, media seems to be driven much more by like incendiary or like put, you know, things that'll really like, that'll cause a reaction in, in folks more yeah. so than it is like <laughs> this proposition has excellent evidence on its behalf. You know, like that does not strike me as the thing that's going to lead the news anywhere right now. Well, the, the evidence of the lab leak theory is essentially that uh, gain of function research is, is uh, controversial. And, um, essentially it is that the, the virus leaked out of this lab in China, either because it leaked or because China is making weapon of war and reason, reason, reason. Right. One of the reasons I don't think the, the lab leak theory is real is because of the Spanish flu. Okay. Yeah. So I, the way I started this podcast is I did a deep dive into the Spanish flu. Um, the Spanish flu, or I shouldn't say the Spanish flu, um, most viruses that humans are susceptible to come from basically the region of China where Wuhan is, okay, for lots of reasons that have to do with the earth and animals and sanitary conditions, etc. okay? Yeah. So that's, for me, automatically, that's exhibit A for, I, this is why I don't believe in the lab leak theory, because where'd the virus come from? Where viruses come from? Mm. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, like, I'll be interested in the politics of it going forward of like how, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, now and and this was obviously true before the Trump era. I'm sure. Um, I just we're so much more conscious of it now. Of like, it really is like if this one dude in you know this one rich guy in Florida who plays golf every day and drinks Diet Coke, if he decides that something is like a thing he wants to talk about, then basically half of our country here again doing the American Family stuff, right? Like half of our country is just going to say that's true now. And so, like, I'm curious of, like, to me, I'm, I'm wondering if, and thank God he's not on Twitter because it would be so much worse if he was still on Twitter. But, you know, I'm wondering if we, in the campaign speeches surely to come for Mr. Trump uh, in 2024, if we will get, like, the lab leak theory is, is absolute truth and then it will just become doctrine amongst the Republican Party. Like, that's... That's what I'm, I'm curious about that aspect of it. Um, and it's, and then like the, whether it's true or not, is kind of this interesting curiosity, to, curiosity to me, it'd be a very interesting, like, you know, this sci-fi movie thing that we've always said is going to happen actually happened. Um, 
but you know, beyond that, I'm kind of like, that's, that's above my pay grade. Like I, I don't well, know enough about COVID to, to have any kind of opinion yeah. about that. I mean, I, I know, honestly, I probably know more about COVID than you do, but not more than say a doctor would maybe, but yeah. my honest opinion is that the wrong. So the way to get a virus is it's like bird plus mammal on the menu. Mm. like bird um, droppings or fish, but normally bird plus mammal on the menu that is undercooked. Mm. Right. Okay. So I'm much more of the thought that some random bird got with some dirt that maybe because of climate change or because of something, you know, had some virus that woke up or, was created or whatever and then the person ate ate the the wrong mammal that day or something i'm much more likely to believe that yeah um but i think some of the some of the issue the reason the republicans and your rank and file conservatives fall in line with the lab leak theory is it automatically ignores climate change yeah like it automatically ignores because one of the things about COVID that's so strange is, okay, so normal coronavirus. Okay, so the normal coronavirus is literally on everything. It's on this computer. It's on my phone. It's on my blood pressure pills. It's in my water. It's literally everywhere. Okay? Mm. If you to die, for you to die of normal COVID, you have to have a compromised immune system. Right. Okay. So that's one of the things about COVID that's so weird is it mutated. It sort of amp up, it sort of like put the afterburners on or, or however you want to say it. So, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think an interesting thing always is like, I think going back to sports for a second, like I, Part of the research that I've been doing recently is, is thinking about sports as this kind of like celebration of contingent events and contingency in the universe that like kind of anything can happen. Um, mm-hmm. And pandemic stuff is kind of the opposite of that, <laughs> you know, sort of a, the really deeply tragic sense of contingency of like this one bird did this one thing and it got on this dirt that one person didn't clean off. And then there was a pandemic that killed him. You know what I mean? Like that, that that's, that's the opposite side of anything can happen. Um, and you just kind of have like part of what I think just to, to give you a soapbox for a second is like part of what I feel like sports can do. And especially as like a Georgia Bulldogs fan, I've had to think about this a lot is like, it's a weird little like pedagogy for accepting the history that you're in, you know, but accepting it as changeable, right. As like, I can do something about this history in so many ways. So, so like you're saying like, so to, to give, so to give an example, so like you're saying, um, let's give a, we're both Atlanta United fans. Yeah. So let's say like, because Tata Martino came to this new team, Miguel Almarone came to the new team, which brought Atlanta United a championship in 2018. Yeah. And that was totally contingent upon Tata Martino saying yes, Tata Martino being let go from whatever job he had before. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I, what I'm more, what I'm saying is like, yes, that's an aspect of it, but that like, 
so there's this theologian um, in who's, who's British uh, who I follow. He's an, he's an Arsenal supporter, um, and which is which is a funny thing now because he's like really had to live some of the stuff that he put down on paper back when they were good. But he he has this he has a theology of sport that his name's Lincoln. I should just plug him now. So his name's Lincoln Harvey. The book is Brief Theology of Sport. If any of the stuff that I've said is interesting to you, this is mostly where it comes from. Um, and he describes sport as the liturgical celebration of our contingency. So like, that's what the liturgy of sport is about is the good side of it is celebrating human finiteness and human history and the contingency of the created world that like it, we are, it's not worship. We're not worshiping God secretly. It's not like a new religion that, you know, is replacing our old religious drive. Like so many scholars want to think that it is but that like sport is actually this impulse in us to celebrate uh, the stuff that's not God, the stuff that's not God in the world, right? Like yeah. the not Godness of the created order. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I think about it. So the contingency bit of what you just described of Tata and, and, and Miggy is, you know, certainly there, like that's part of the stuff that you celebrate of like, this could have been otherwise, like we yeah. could have hired Frank DeBoer first, God knows. Um, and then who knows who we would have had like Wesley Schneider and, you know, old, you know, 80 year old Aryan Robin <laughs> trying to play for Atlanta. And that would have been great. Um, or it could have been really cool. I, I was on the Wesley Schneider train for a while there in the very beginning um, that we thought, I thought Atlanta should have signed him. Uh, but yeah, so like all that is, it could have been otherwise, but then like the actual, you know, doing of the sporting event, um, is about celebrating contingency and Harvey's really good because he also has yeah. this, this way of incorporating winning and losing that, that I think is really good. Cause you could get into that of like the you know, sports celebrating contingency. Well, the only thing you're really celebrating is like winning and being good and successful. And you could turn it into a kind of prosperity gospel, but like Harvey, yeah. Harvey's really in like intense about, no, it's about like the winners and the losers. It's this dance between the two, like, poles of our being basically like we are created out of nothing and then we are invited into the fullness of god's own life basically and mm -hmm. so that's like this eternal thing so you kind of like you have the winners who like sort of rejoice in life and like draw you to that invitation then you have the losers who kind of represent like this is sort of the the tragic like nothingness out of which we were made and like both that the dual mm -hmm. dynamic like draws us into like the full picture of who we are, you know, um, as created beings. And so, so yeah, I, I, like, I, I think it's not necessarily just a, oh man, this we're celebrating the fact that this could have gone differently. Uh, it's more like you're celebrating the whole of it, even when it goes bad, you know? So and again, as a Georgia, a Georgia football fan, this is tough because Georgia is like, I'm trying, I'll, I'll think of a more global example for it of, you know, think of, I don't know, trying to think of a good sure. Manchester city trying to win the champions league and before that trying to win the premier league, right? Like just continual, awful, heartbreaking failure, uh, continually. Yeah. Um, UJ, UJ honestly is good, but they're not, they're not quite in that second in that other league. Yeah, we so are to again, to do a very insular American conversation. We are very much what Clemson was before Clemson became who they are now. Like people, there's a, there's a joke yeah. in American sports that like, that I think a guy tried to make it a thing where like you turn Georgia into a verb, like you're Georgia-ing this really bad, which means like you're going to come really close to winning, but you're going to fall flat on your face right at the end. Right. 
That right. used to be Clemsoning. Clemsoning was the verb well before Georgia-ing was a thing. And people forget that now because nobody's ever used, nobody's used that verb in quite some time. But Clemsoning was a huge, like back in the, in the early 2010s era of Twitter, Clemsoning was a huge thing that happened almost every, every year. Clemson would do, do this to themselves before they began winning yeah. national championships, running away with it. But so like, that was a thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. <laughs> Again, you know what's, American you know, it, it's funny. It just occurred to me. I mean, I, I, the most recent podcast I have up on my feed is a is a podcast with a young man uh, who he lives in Manitoba. And the way I put it is we have a similar affliction. We're both Winnipeg Jets fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here we are talking about college football. But it just occurred to me talking to you how much sports and I've interviewed Rob Usry, you know, how much sports really is in my podcast. Yeah. Some, some cases that was overt and other cases, not so much. Part of the reason I make a case for scholars to study it so much and for people to take it seriously is that like, again, going back to like the relevancy question, I guess, like people, the scholars are always lamenting that like nobody gives a crap about the really esoteric stuff that we study, even though we find it deeply important and that it explains so much. And then I'm like, that's true. But you're also looking at a phenomenon that is one of the few global languages we have. Like it's this, like you, so there's so much common ground or like common understanding to be had amongst folks through sports fandom, not necessarily through playing sports because that's, you know, that can go either way. But like sports fandom is such like this universal thing among across so many different cultures and and continents and and peoples and languages and ethnicities and like so many scholars still treat it as as like this doofy you know awful either pointless silly obsession of of people or of this like really evil capitalistic scheme to exploit as many people as possible now it's that latter thing a bunch i'm not going to say it's not definitely does that um but it, it just strikes me as so odd that so few scholars or intellectuals like really care about this that much or like want to want to like bring their research stuff to it, especially if you're in the if you're in the humanities, there's like no excuse. Like just bring your stuff to sports and see if it works. Um, you know, yeah. science, I understand, like, you you know, you're doing your own little field. But, you know, I, I am always oh. befuddled of why people don't care more about it from an intellectual and scholastic standpoint, because it does seem to like going back to Charles Taylor, it seems very much to shape so many people's imagined picture of the world, you know? And like, if you're doing theory about the way our culture or our, our society works, like there's a really clear big point where we kind of work out what we think we're about as a people or as a culture, you know? And sports yeah. is clearly that, that arena, or at least one of those arenas where that work is done. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, a American, I forget his name right now, but there's an American who he, he lives in, he lives in Britain, but he was, he's, he's a British, he's an American historian about British history. Mm. And he's thought of as somebody who's very, you know, intelligent and what he's widely read. I forget his name now. But he had this quote that I thought was amazing. He said, you know, I, I'm thought to be one of the the biggest minds on like the Brit the rise of the British middle class in in world history. And that might be true, but I've thought more about the St. Louis Cardinals bullpen <laughs> than I ever thought. <laughs> about, 
about anything about Britain. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was his point was that you need to, if you're going to understand history, you need to go where the history, go where the bulk of the people are. Yeah. And I really think, I mean, you were talking earlier about this dichotomy of, that a sports fan can have. Well, you can't be a, a fan of the National Hockey League and not have some kind of dichotomy about you. You can't say you can't say, well, okay, on the one hand, this liter this league is literally a scheme to to get towns to invest in these buildings. Yeah. You know, and and you hear the intelligent you read the articles about the intelligent people saying, well, when the concert business goes belly up, what's the NHL going to do? Yeah. Uh, because they depend on the concert business to keep their arenas occupied. But on the other hand, at 7.30 or because the Jets play in the central time zone, by 8 o'clock at night, I don't care about any of that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, yes, that's a great argument. And you're right. For three, but for three hours, a, for three hours a night, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. And, and this is part of why I think people are being so ridiculous to say that, um, you know, college football will be, you know, irrevocably damaged by. And to do a more global one, like thinking about the Super League, you know, like if the Super League were to happen, you know, that would be the end of football forever or something. And then for a college, like if we pay players, then nobody's going to like the sport anymore. And like, I just think that there is that exact thing you're describing is it is just so deeply ingrained into so many people's worlds that this is a cool thing that they care about. And there's so much history to it now too, right? Like we, like there are so many Georgia fans who've been waiting on a national title since 1980 and have been living through like, when's it going to happen? There's so many of us now who are like, have never seen it happen ever and are like, am I going to die before this happens? You know? Um, and there's so many fan bases that are like that across the world that have like just invested in this to where like, it's, it really is just, it's an intractable cultural phenomenon. Like it cannot go away. If history presents some stuff that's like really, really hard for it, you know, these are the kind of things I think that tend to more so adapt than die off, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't, like I, I totally identify with that of, you know, I'm looking at college sports because God knows that's even worse. Like, you know, it's not just as a scheme for these stadiums, but it's like, you know, the Nathan Callum Lamb, who I follow on Twitter, they have a great podcast called The End of Sport where they they talk about in so many ways all the terrible things about sport, him and uh, two other scholars, uh, Derek Silva. And, I'm, and I hope they'll forgive me if I butchered any of these names and Joanna Mellis. Um they're all wonderful folks who, who talk about sports all the time, but, you know, talk very, very openly about how awful sports are in so many ways. And, and college sports is, you know, head of the list. Like we're exploiting athletic labor, especially college football. You're playing a sport that like might not even be moral to play because of all the ways that like it affects your the, brain, you know, the head like, trauma. The yeah. That, bye, like bye, we bye. Know, yeah. You like know we're doing that to 20 year olds who aren't being compensated for it. And it's like this, sort of ladder of trying to see who climbs to the top to be like the 2% of players that go through all that crap and then finally get to go get paid millions of dollars for it in the NFL. And then you could be there for like two years and then the NFL could be also working to scheme you out of money by like not guaranteeing your contract, you know, or like 
paying you the rookie rate for two years. And then if you don't get hurt or have your body broken by the sport, then you get your second contract and actually get rich. It's just, it's not a great (laughs) moral system is what I'm trying to say. Um, And yet I am obsessed with it, right? Like I, I, and not just Georgia, like I watch, you know, I want to watch every single game on TV as often as I can. Like I, I love it. And I don't know if it's like a, if there is a mature, like a maturity aspect of it, of like, you just get older and come to accept that you love some things that are really, and forgive the curse here, but like that are really shitty, you know, like you just get to that point. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I don't know. Cause I feel like you have this argument with some people and like part of their thing is just that like the bad stuff about it doesn't exist. And it's like, it clearly does guys. Like, well, let's just stop with that. Like it clearly does. Um, we are yeah. involved when we support these institutions, we are involved in some shady moral stuff to say the least. Right. Like we are yeah. openly supporting it. And, well, and yeah, things, I, just, like, I can't not love it though. You know, like it's, it is so hard, yeah. but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One of the things I think that's different about our time now versus say, I'd even say 20 years ago, maybe not. Well, maybe not 10 years ago, but 20 years ago for sure. Is that because you have these supercomputers in your pocket, you can have you can have talks with folks all over the world. Yeah, but you can also have talks with people in your own country that know things you don't know, yeah. and so you have to know. Like you, you're forced to confront stuff like um, like homelessness. I had a I had a whole lawyer. I had a podcast on who explained um, homelessness to me in ways I'd never thought about. Yeah, and it's really, and I I keep referencing, and that's how much of an impact it gave me because I talk about this one podcast on virtually all the other podcasts after that. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just like, oh my, I had no idea that we had this this much homelessness in this country prior to twenty twenty. Yeah, you know, or right. like, you know, I had a roommate in college who played basketball at the college I went to, and I saw the stuff that people don't see about how they treat basketball players, how this college that I went to treated its basketball players. Yeah. And that left a really sour taste in my mouth for, for college athletics in general. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think, so there's this, there's this scholar whose work I adore uh, named Colin Koopman, who's a philosopher Mm -hmm. from university of Oregon. I think, I think he's still there. I don't know if he's moved yet or not. Um, he wrote a book called how we became our data and it's a great book. It's about tech. Um, or it's, it's like a, you know, again, I, I love Foucault. So it's kind of like a, it's a sort of a genealogy of how we became so entwined with data talking about the supercomputers in your pocket. And part of his theory about how to understand where we're at is he called, he said what, what new tech does or what the tech that we have now does is the sort of data world that we live in is is like a fastening effect. So fastening is in like, I want to fasten something to the wall, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of plays with that word of like both the fast bit of it, like the go fast ending, mm-hmm. like getting you to go faster, and also the binding aspect of that word too, to where like a new tech now that comes out that does so much for our world, right? Social media is a great example. It fastens us. So it makes, it creates exponential growth in in like a new thing we get to do now. Right. 
So mm-hmm. social media creates this immense, cool connection of like, so we, we, have, we have access to so much more knowledge, so many more experiences out in the world. We can communicate, as you say, with people across the planet, yada, 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 all the stuff that people say that's great about social media, right? Um, mm-hmm. Coordinated actions, whatever. But we are also, at the same time, bound to the decisions of the people who create this technology of like how it fastens us into certain boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can only do like, there are certain, like there are certain ways you have to present yourself. You have to give certain information to the companies. You like are only allowed to post in like these sorts of things. There are rules that are top down rules upon you. And then also like once you kind of let open Pandora's box for social media, like you are bound then to the world in which social media is a thing, right? You cannot get or, out. Of here. Yeah. Or there was a, okay. So I've got an exact example, right? Um, how many people know to clean out their browser history? Number one. Yeah. How many people have ever gone on like the tour browser and seen how different the world is? Yeah. If social media or if uh, YouTube, for example, or even the news, hell, even the news doesn't know what country you live in. Yeah. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Or like I remember there was a line that Obama said it was during ISIS. It was while ISIS was going really hardcore. And Obama said that he talked to Google or whatever it was. And then Google said, well, they can't track down individual youtube users to see if they're watching isis videos yeah and i immediately as soon as i heard that i was like wait a second because youtube knows exactly what my favorite bands are youtube has a better idea of what my favorite (laughs) bands are than i do okay just saying (laughs) yep no i mean it's like it's one of those things where like you hear that and you go, that can't be true. Like there's no way that's actually the case that y'all are just incapable of working with the technology you made. Right. But But they're not, but that's the thing. They're not, they didn't want to. Yeah. But you know, yeah, but they're, they're very much just kind of like a, you know, the Skynet has become self-sustaining or whatever, you know, like how won't open the pod bay doors about some of the social media stuff. Like, you know, yeah. nervous Al is flown and you can't get it back. Um, I, it's like I was talking to a friend of mine about how he asked me, like, we talked about LinkedIn. And I was saying, like, I hate LinkedIn because what LinkedIn is, is it puts your entire work history online that's searchable so anybody can find it. Yeah. I really hate that idea. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, I think that and that's one of the things that sort of Koopman is describing in his book is like, you like we want to say we are something different than the internet data version of ourselves and he's like no the like the way the world is now is that like you are your data like you really are it's like imagine a world where like all of the digital markers imagine like you wake up tomorrow like you know kafka's metamorphosis kind of thing not as a giant cockroach but as like a person who has no digital markers at all It's like Mm. you barely could live like you can't get a house without digital marking stuff. You can't go to the grocery store and buy stuff. Typically, you know, like you can't earn. It's really hard to earn money, basically impossible unless it's in like a more of a shady, like cash under the table situation. But still, like you need like some kind of ID 
to travel anywhere. Like mm-hmm. we, we really have simply like made a world in which it is impossible not to buy into some of this stuff. Um, right. And that oh, you're exactly right. And that's, and that's kind of like the insidious part of it, you know, is, is you, you can begin to believe some of the people who were like this all, you know, you get why there are these sort of conspiracy theories that are about people controlling media or about people, you know, a, a larger government group or something like controlling our lives through the technological ways that we're kind of like bound to tech. But like mm. that, like I get why that thinking is appealing because you really just don't have a choice. Like you're just kind yeah. of, you're stuck in a world where you have to be digital in some ways. And like right. the world punishes you if you're not. Um, and, mm-hmm. and going back to Taylor for a second, it's like in the past, it could have been the case that if you were in a world like that and you saw some broad thing that was bad and insidious, you could kind of work to change it. But I think what's so difficult about our moral situation now, especially as it relates to climate change and big things like that, is like you feel powerless to do any of that, right? Like you can't stop Google from like making it to where you have to give some sort of, you know, digital thing to get to your stuff. You know, like you can't, like, I don't have, I don't get to, I don't have a say in that. And yet my world is so much controlled by Google and Facebook, you know, like so much of my world is shaped by Amazon and Google and Facebook and my children's world will be shaped by them, you know, in a way that I I don't have any say in. And here's the thing. I mean, and I say this ever since I had this guy on my podcast, right? He was a, he was an IT professional and he's an expert in internet privacy. Uh And he talked about how the thing about Facebook that's terrifying is Facebook. So, like, I can give you the Super Bowl ad, right, where Facebook is the phone company and the browser for the third world. And and that's amazing. And, and we're all happy that that's going on. Sure. All right. But so I'm from the South. You're from the South. We're both white. Okay. I have a friend that has a saying about Facebook. Why do I want to get into an argument with somebody I have to pass the peas to? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Why do I want to do that? So his thought is, why do I want to be on Facebook at all? And eventually, Facebook, according to this guy that I interviewed, is going to go away. And when that happens, that data is going to be up for sale. Ah. And I don't know, because I don't know your background in technology, I don't know if you're aware the level of data that Facebook has on you. Yeah. It's an, it's I, an insane I, amount of data they have. I have suspicions, right? Like, I, I know they know. I, like, at a certain point, you know, I think protecting your social, being really concerned about protecting your social security number to me is kind of a marker of older generations. Cause I'm like, I have no idea why anybody would want that for me <laughs> in a way. You're like, all right, you just kind of assume now that like most people can get access to most of my stuff. You know, like I, I just, I have very little faith that yeah. most all of my, all the stuff about me is probably out on the internet somewhere. Well, I mean, okay. You said you're a scholar. Yeah. Um, if you've published any books, I can virtually guarantee you that something is available. Yeah. Like, I mean, um, I, have, I have, I have the articles. No, not a book yet. Almost there working on it. Well, okay. So here's, what's going to happen. So my name, I put my name on my podcast, right? Yeah. So if you Google my name, my podcast comes up. 
So if I title the name of this podcast, Dr. Jason Smith. <laughs> yep. Right. This podcast is going to come up. Just saying. Yeah. Um, no, it's that's how it goes, especially, I mean, you know, having written stuff yeah. on the internet about sports and other things like I'm out there, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I know the risk of that. <laughs> and the terrifying thing to me is I did not drive. So we vote in, the, we vote at the county pool, right? Yeah. When we vote, we vote at the county pool. So my thing is I didn't drive to the pool and vote for Google to do any of this. Yeah. Or Facebook or any of that. Right. Yep. <laughs> Yep. I mean, and when we get off air, I can tell you some things that I know Facebook knows about me that I'm like, I don't know how they knew that unless they're recording my phone conversations. Yeah. Yep. I literally don't know how they knew that. All right. Yeah. One of my, <laughs> one of my dear friends is an, is a um, assistant DA uh, somewhere that I will not say. And his, his thing has always been, he is desperate and wants to do it so bad to subpoena Instagram because Instagram asks for your microphone access, right? And like he is certain that he can, in a criminal case somewhere, he could get evidence for by subpoenaing Instagram and like getting stuff from the microphone stuff, you know, that's constantly recording, basically. Oh, I, I know. Let me, when we go off air, I'll tell you the story. And you can tell your friend, yep, yep, yep. You see, I was on this podcast and. The podcaster told me, and yeah, it's a thing. Yep, no, for real, for real. That's real. No. That's totally real. But, uh, Dr. Smith, so this is going to take a while to download, and you're very charming. I love talking to you. You can come back anytime you want to. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, but this is going to take a second to download. All right, just bear with me here. Unhook the recording.